Welcome to In the Envelope, a podcast from Backstage, the number one resource for actors and talent seekers. I am your host, Jack Smart, awards editor at Backstage, and I'm here to guide you through every aspect of the entertainment industry with the help of some of your favorite stars. These intimate, inspirational conversations with today's most award-worthy film, television, and theater artists provide you, dear listener, advice on how to live the creative life, personal stories of success and failure alike, and maybe, just maybe, a tantalizing glimpse in the envelope. you can wrap your head around who you are, then when you're auditioning for things and not getting them, you will ideally not be so rattled and so wrought when it's not you. Because if you are you and you're confident in who you are and you don't get the gig, they didn't want you. Hello, listeners, and welcome to another episode of In the Envelope Testing 123. Today's guest needs no introduction. In fact, just like last week's guest, it's so cool to air Neil Patrick Harris on the heels of Queen Latifah. I feel like these episodes are in conversation with each other, both consummate performers who thrive in any role in any area of the industry. I think if anyone who does not want to be boxed in or ever pigeonholed in the entertainment industry can listen to these episodes back to back. Neil Patrick Harris. What an entertainer, what an artist, and just what a nice guy. (laughs) For those who may not know, Neil did get his start as a child actor. He was discovered at a drama camp, which he talks about here. Many know him from How I Met Your Mother, where he played the iconic Barry Stinson. Um, But of course, he's also kind of known as a host and presenter including of particularly the Tony Awards, but also the Emmys and the Oscars. And I really enjoyed uh, speaking to him about that as a as a theater nerd or as a Tony's nerd in particular. Um, there's even some behind the scenes tidbits that I don't know that anyone's heard before. Super, super cool. And yeah, this interview could sort of be heard as like a hosting and presenting 101 or as a how to be a multi-hyphenate in Hollywood 101. Of course, everyone's path through the biz is different, and Neil does a great job of kind of explaining how his went. And up next, he has Australia. <laughs> Here's just to get a sense of Neil's range. Up next, he's hosting, he's a judge on Australia's Got Talent, Challengers and Champions, but he'll also be starring in Matrix 4. Um, and he's here today to also talk about his appearance on It's a Sin, which is a limited series created by Russell T. Davies set in London in the 1980s amid the HIV AIDS crisis. He delivers a very, very poignant and powerful role in that, which of course we talked about. And yeah, I would just say listeners, if you're here, if you're a Neil Patrick Harris fan, welcome. And if you're here for the advice, this is a great interview. I would just say, listen really closely to the way Neil talks about his philosophy, the qualities that he brings to all of his wide ranging work. Listen very, very closely to what he is saying. And um, I think that's it for today. We will link to Neil's recent appearance in Backstage Fest in the episode description and in the article that comes out with this episode. And um, yeah, let's take a quick break and then get to this interview with Neil Patrick Harris. For your Emmy Awards consideration, the HBO original Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. This Emmy-winning variety series features comedian John Oliver satirically covering breaking news, politics, and current events on a weekly basis. All episodes of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver are now streaming on HBO Max for your Emmy consideration in outstanding variety talk series and all other categories. Neil Patrick Harris is the kind of entertainer who can truly do it all. Across his multi-hyphenate career, including a breakout as a child star on Doogie Howser, M.D., comedic turns in the Harold and Kumar films How I Met Your Mother and a series of unfortunate events, musicals including Rent, Company, and Dr. Horrible's sing-along blog, and hosting every major award show, he's earned a Tony Award for Hedwig and the Angry Inch, five Emmy Awards, and much more. He now appears on the Channel 4 and HBO Max Limited series, It's a Sin. Please welcome the iconic 
Neil Patrick Harris. Neil. Hiya. Hi, thank you so much for joining us. This is so great. Thanks for chatting with me about this. Yeah, where are, so you're in Australia. I am in currently quarantining in Sydney, Australia. My okay, next gig cool. is going to be kind of the antithesis of It's a Sin. I'm going to be a, <laughs> a judge on Australia's Got Talent. They're, re, oh, they're cool. relaunching that after two seasons. They sort of, everyone skipped out last year, obviously, because of the world global situation. And so, yes. um, yeah, I get to sit at the, on the panel and um, try and create and curate uh, an amazing uh, handful of shows for the country and pick someone that uh, is super awesome. Oh, yeah. I can't wait. Weirdly, my skill set of loving magic and and having done, um, I've dabbled in a lot of variety arts, you know, I, oh, yeah. I do trapeze work and I know tightrope and juggle and I've danced a bit, I sing some, I've been on stages in various capacities. So yes. um, weirdly, my, like, my previous chapters have aligned me to be totally. a fairly competent um, arbiter of that sort of talent. So I'm looking forward to it very much. Yes. Australia's Got Talent, as you said, so exciting. That's so, so in keeping with the skill set, as you say. What was it like being a guest judge on Chopped is what I really want to know. I personally. So I'm glad you ask. I love those shows and Me too. we're friendly with uh, Jeffrey Zakarian. Their family's a good friend of ours through through circumstance and through love of, of culinary things. And, and so we asked him if we could be judges just to see what it was like. He said, are you sure you want to be a judge on Chopped? Because to be honest, sometimes when they're panic cooking food that they don't know the basket ingredients you're you're eating food that is not good potentially inedible sometimes oh, and okay. i thought that was the the most exciting element of it <laughs> yeah. so david and i have both done david's david's been a guest judge my husband has been a guest judge more than i have it's really fun and oh, yeah. it, it's it's an amazing factory um a, a, a very exciting machine and i never had bad food but it's interesting to have um, cameras filming your every chew and bite and swallow. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> you have to, you have to yeah. take delicate portions, and then I, I cannot frown. You know, it's interesting to to realize what a terrible poker face I have sure. when I when I'm eating things that I like or or don't like. And there's no second take of eating one dish, so it is just all the cameras are on you, and that's the take they're going to use. That is pretty much the take. They do a, a wonderful thing, which is they ask you about every dish in the positive and then in the negative. So it gives them an option in the edit to yeah. manipulate uh, oh, okay. as they as they want to. So it's actually a, a nice thing to learn how to do, which is when you have a, a gut reaction to something, to not just stick with that as your only opinion, but to be able to find things that you do like about a dish that you don't like or vice versa. This is the insider tea that I was looking for. This has nothing to do Job with backstage tea, or acting. <laughs> um, you just spoke to backstage as part of our backstage fest. Thank you. It was so, it was so fun. And you had not spoken to us before that, or at least not for many, many years. Did you ever hmm. have a relationship with backstage? Like, did you ever use us for casting things or casting, getting yourself cast? Really the only backstage I was aware of was when, um, was years ago when they were casting for the tour of Rent, the second national tour. Mm -hmm. And I had only heard that they were doing a second national tour because of backstage, because they made oh. an announcement. Cause they, you know, they were trying to cast people who weren't your typical musical theater actor they were trying to find a very diverse patchwork of individual and mm -hmm. so i think someone said i think that was the nucleus of that as an idea and then i ended up um i had an agent at the time so i went and got a, an audition for it got the job did the tour and have had a wonderful long uh chapter of rent in my life yeah. so yeah 
Yeah. Wait, so that was you, you not being quite the traditional like musical theater type at that point. I think of you as such a musical theater type. Well, I, I mean, I, I'm, I was very much a white boy of, with some liquidity financially because I was, I had been on a television show. So, so I was able to go and, um, go to New York once or twice a year and see 10 or 12 shows. So my knowledge of musical theater was very Broadway, but I hadn't a lot of experience. And to be candid, I think my television background was a detriment in Mm. that job because at that time, Rent was thought of as very Lower East Side and the whole conceit of Mark Cohen in that show was art versus commerce. Do you sell yourself out to the television industry uh, or do you go with your passion and your artistic integrity? And (laughs) I had just been on a television show. (laughs) So, uh, so I objected to that idea because I think one can, uh, can marry the two. One can, can, um, can, can have them both simultaneously. I mean, obviously not in Mark's specific instance, but I wanted that job very much. And, and in point of fact, that was a real jumping off point for me about appreciating the world outside of myself and recognizing my uniqueness um, mm. and my sort of lack of diversity and my my kind of myopic view of life coming from small town New Mexico mm-hmm. to California. That was kind of my spin. I would go to New York to see shows and go, go back to the West Coast. So I didn't really know a lot of other types of people. And yeah. so getting to live within the world of rent um, really opened my eyes to more types of of uh, existence. So I, I, sure. I am so thankful that I got to do that gig because it was a real game changer for me just in my life. Thanks partly to Backstage. <laughs> Thanks partly to a notice in Backstage. <laughs> that's the, <laughs> I owe that's them everything. The propaganda we want to hear. Yeah, exactly. That's so cool though, like this idea of art and commerce that by that point in your career already that you had already come to this conclusion of like, I can have both. I can I can balance both. And you kind of already had that philosophy. I th- well, I think back then I I was operating from a different perspective, which was I had been um, very fortunate in the commerce side of art. Yeah. I was on a television show on ABC. It was on with commercials in between the acts and. Yet it was a Stephen Bochco show. It was single camera. So I didn't feel like I was just doing uh, work to get eyes on the show. I thought the integrity of Doogie Hauser was high. I mean, we couldn't paraphrase. I had to learn medical jargon, medical, like how to suture and sew and three hours of school a day. So I was working hard. (laughs) But that was at a time when TV was very different from movies, which was very different from theater. And so what I appreciated and I think has been important to me with career sort of longevity is trying to have the pers- the outside perspective to see what you're getting into mm. and what and how you can assist and make best use of the medium that you're in. Because doing a commercial for a product mm. can have artistic integrity. Um, doing a sitcom for like an NBC guest star of a sitcom is a whole different beast, right? And so you have to figure out what the game is and how, how best to, how to use your skills in the most effective way given the, given the singularity of the game. The game, yes, that's so cool. And I'm definitely going to ask you about this idea of um, film, TV, theater being separate back in the day, and now mm. maybe it's a little bit more like multi-hyphenate. But for those who don't know, what was the career launch? How did you get your start in Doogie Hauser? And what also was the um, what were the earliest inspirations? When did you know you wanted to do acting? I grew up in a very uh, in a small ski resort town in South Central New Mexico called Ruidoso, R U I D O S O, and it had um, it was mostly tourism based. 
mm-hmm. mostly from Texas, which New Mexico is adjacent to. So in the winter, uh, there's a ski resort that's there. In the summer, there's uh, quarter horse uh, track racing. So the All-American Futurity is there every year. And then there's skiing in the winter. So there was not a lot of arts. It was mostly football. And I was I found the Ruidoso Little Theater which was housed in various locations. There was not like an actual theater. It was at the golf course. It was oh, the cool. Cree Mountain Country Club for a while, and we had to build the sets and things. Yeah. But I, even back then at 8, 9, 10, when I was doing that, I was assistant directing Death Trap. Yeah. And we were also to Mexico. So I had this cool. love of performance from a very, a really very early age. I was allowed to sing in our parents' Episcopal choir when I was seven, eight years old in the adult choir because I wasn't afraid to oh. sing soprano. And um, and so I I was always kind of interested in that world. I was asked to go to a drama camp when I was very young, about to enter high school. My band and, and choir teachers thought that that would be cool to do. So I went to that in New Mexico State University and a man named Mark Medoff uh, was the um, playwright in residence there. And Mark, very prolific, recently passed away, but Children of a Lesser God was his opus and amazing piece of work. He had written a movie called Clara's Heart that was a Warner Brothers feature film uh, vehicle for Whoopi Goldberg. And I was at this drama camp and the other lead in the movie was a very waspy kid uh, from Maryland and he was the protagonist in this in the book and Mark and I got to meet and I was in a cold reading audition class for him randomly and he thought I'd be a good (laughs) choice for it so he championed me to put myself on tape with him and I didn't get the job and then they wound up um, replacing the director and the previous uh, actor who got the job and they hired on a different director and then they wound up hiring me to be a co-star opposite Whoopi Goldberg in this big movie. And so that was sort of the launch of it all was through the, that feature film. And weirdly at the same time, the kid who didn't get it, I've had like mad kinship with, even though I never met him because I was so excited no to also New Mexico that, so it turns out that he was in a big Broadway musical, which was Les Miserables, which I had heard about at this drama camp. I didn't even know Les Miserables was a, like, I didn't even know what that meant. I thought that was a French musical or something. And so then I started listening to Les Mis because I, because I was close to Hollywood in some, or close to Broadway in some way. And so I learned all, I learned that whole show, Les Mis. Yeah. And I learned Gavroche's part and I imagined myself as as that part. And (laughs) so that was the first show I wound up seeing when I went to New York. And that was kind Mm. of festered my love for, for that discipline. So I did Clara's Heart and then that was cool. And it came out and then I did a couple TV movies. And then I was, because you once you like are leading in a motion picture, you're able to audition for things a little bit easier. And then I wound up getting mm-hmm. Doogie Hauser after that. So I went from a movie to a TV show and that was four years. And then I was very interested in theater that whole time. So I bounced to theater. I did Romeo at, um, in San Diego at the, at the Old Globe Theater. Um, that Dan Sullivan directed. And I just was really into full body immersive experiences. I think having done camera work first, I I felt a little restricted to this box. Like you can't, you can't move too quickly when you're on film. You know, if you, if you, if you want to sit down, you can't just plop yourself into a chair because there's a camera guy behind that holding two little wheels and spinning them around to get, you know, to keep you in frame the whole time. So you learn Mm. to sit down in a slow sit down so that you have good footage and you don't like pop out of frame and then appear back in the frame. And so from that, I, you know, from a few years of just sort of standing still a lot, emoting from the, breastbone to the top of my head, I felt like I was disconnected from my whole self in a way. And I think that that uh, spat me towards seeing what flop sweat, rehearsing Shakespeare 
or, or <laughs> singing in a cavernous space where you have to be aware of your whole entity. That became my, my larger journey. I'm still very turned on by the idea of transformation, whether it be as a performer, which I've gotten to do some interesting transformational work, but also as an audience member, I'm, I love the, um, I love sleep no more. And I love, I love when theater can expand outside of, I love escape rooms. I love when you're experiencing content and you're not just passively sitting and observing mm. it. Yeah. That's so interesting that you swung towards theater because it's like in response to the film stuff, like you just wanted to get out of your body. You wanted to get in touch with your body. You just instinctively wanted that. Partly. And, and I'm also a magician by hobby. And yeah. so there was a magic shop in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which was where my grandparents lived. And so I'd save all my allowance in Ruidoso, mm. drive for three hours with my parents, Albuquerque, go straight to the magic shop. And I would... Um, have these great options of things to purchase. One big thing, seven small things. And then with my booty, I would, on the three hour drive back home, I'd get to open up the packet, you know, and see what the secret yeah. is and see what the pattern is and, 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 and create my own little routine in my mind. So because magic became my thing, I think that was also aligned with theater. Because yeah. I do think there's something so magical Every time you sit in an, an auditorium, a theater with all these rows where the second row is seeing a similar but piece to someone in the balcony, mm. and then the curtain rises, and it's a whole set, like a whole village, and then all of a sudden all the set moves away, and now it's a blank space, and then suddenly the rotates, and you're like in a different set. And I'm, I'm thinking, where do all these sets go? Like who's, is someone building these things, putting them together? How do the quick changes happen? It was all a big magic show to me. Whereas when you're filming something, you have the benefit of time. I mean, I guess in movies more than television, right? But you, you can cut and adjust and redo and try again. And you sit in your trailer yeah. for half an hour while they, someone, another team lights it. And then you're going to come on and you practice and then you do it. Now, at my my vocal inflection makes it sound like I'm bored <laughs> by that. And it's not that. It's just that you don't do A to Z. You don't get to... There's no real magic yeah. when you're making something on film. Yeah. The actor is is, as you say, not as like... In, it's a sternum to top of your head for one thing and sitting in your trailer a lot. The director and the editor, that, that's movie making magic, I suppose. And the designers and all of that. Yeah, film work to me is more alchemy. Yeah, oh, okay. You have to have the right combination of director, DP, cast, editor, and then good, you know, like everyone has to be making a similar idea. Because if two actors in a scene are doing different scenes, then right. you're going to have to pick one or the other. You're going to have to... Hot, you have to focus on one person's coverage while you're over the back of the other and try to use audio clips from their takes so that you can maintain the tone of the scene that you want. So, you you know, there's a lot of variables there. When you're doing theater, you know right away that it's not going well or that it's right. going really well because you can sense this palpable energy <laughs> exchange from, from cast to audience. And there's something intoxicating about that. Yeah, I mean, I feel like on this podcast, uh, we are always trying to get at like, what is the through line? What is the thread, the like fundamental central artistic philosophy or mission. And for you, I kind of do think it's, it's the magic is a great explanation like to, of all of your different work in so many different media. Cause I think that you're the showman and there's like an element of the flourish. And there's the, um, I always think about that moment in the Tony Awards number when the, we were that kid, the moment of, we were that kid. And just the innate like curiosity, like you're saying, these magic sets moving in and out, these costumes, these people pretending to be other people. It's magic. It's like childlike wonder is what it is. Yeah, but those are those goosebump moments that I think we all still crave. Yes. It's a blessing to get to go backstage and see how, how where the set goes. You know, I, I'm, I never take that for granted after I see a 
after I see Hamilton, I, I'm lucky. I some I got to go backstage and say hello to Lynn because he helped with the Tonys. And so I, you know, and you get to stand there on that stage and that's so magical. And you get to see all the people that help make a singular thing happen. And And I don't know if one can live their life building a bigger bucket to have... Hmm. lists of moments in right then that's a great life you know i want to i want to i want a tome not a pamphlet that's so, I, so good I, trying to do the best work that i can again given what the circumstances are yeah uh yeah and to leave as small a wake as possible so that those that i intersect with the hmm. net result of those exchanges are positive so yeah. that you have more opportunity for future work with additional people you know it's a long game that's beautiful yeah yeah how much of it is thinking about that versus also or maybe this is the same thing challenging yourself and thinking about pigeonholing i didn't realize until recently that harold and kumar really did change the arc of your career because <laughs> it showed like a different side of you like in my mind I think I think because I was introduced to you as Barney that mm. I didn't realize that Harold and Kumar opened the door for Barney is that true? I suppose in a way I don't know about a super direct line but Yeah. Yes, I think the timing of it was very uh, fortuitous and amazing. I was in New York acting in a very transformational role. I was doing the MC in Cabaret that Sam Mendes and Rob Marshall did. I wasn't cool. the first or second MC. I was, I think I replaced the much sought after Raul Esparza. And uh, I think John Sakata came in after me, but I was there and I was, you know, that was a baller role. My hair mm -hmm. was dyed blue black, as <laughs> were my armpits, my happy trail, my eyebrows. I was, oh, wow. you know, had glitter on my nipples and it was very it was a very tawdry sexy version of that show so i was in that headspace but unfortunately the only people who were seeing it were diehard new yorkers or tourists to yeah. you know the big apple so you're only performing to a thousand people a night and um john and hayden who who uh came up with the harold and kumar's ideas and and wrote them uh, I guess they were fans and they, and they thought it would be funny to take the piss out of it, out of like what people thought I would be like to mm. do sort of an alt version of me. So they came to New York and invited me to lunch and, uh, and told me about this movie that they've already written me. And <laughs> what did I think? As yourself. Yeah. And I thought it was interesting. I did. I wasn't <laughs> quite sure, you know, there was such a divide back then about television actors versus movie people. So TV people wanted to be in movies much more than movie people wanted to be on television. It was hmm. a, there was definitely a pecking order. Hmm. And so I think, I think there was an assumed, uh, assumed behavior that people who were once on television didn't want to talk about it once they were doing something else, right? So the, uh -huh. the, the, the notion that, that you don't talk about Doogie Howser around me because that's what I did in the past and I'm forward thinking oh, wasn't sure. where I was, but I think that was kind of the, uh, the, maybe the understood idea. So me being able to sort of be, um, be less precious about my past right. was a good reboot for everyone. It was nice to show that I wasn't stuck in the past and it was nice mm -hmm. for audiences to kind of see a toilet flush <laughs> of, of like stoner <laughs> comedy and me high on acid and mushrooms humping the back of a car, uh, to, to like, see like that I could, that I had started some sort of new chapter. So this was perfect. I get to play some crazy guy who is nothing like me and yet shares my name. And I think it did open things up and it allowed, um, it allowed Carter and Craig who were the, how I met your mother creators mm. to see that. I was willing to take some big comedic swings. Yeah. So it's it's somewhat conscious. Like, is your advice, and this gets to the question of, it used to be, as you're saying, film, TV, theater, totally separate, totally different mm. tiers. Is, is your advice to the young or aspiring artist today, like be multi-hyphenate, do as many different things as possible, mediums, genres, um, even not limiting yourself to just acting, make your own work, all of that stuff. Yeah, I guess like 
I don't know. I think to to spread yourself too thin hmm. oh. could be detrimental, right? Because then sure. you just have a limited bandwidth and you don't really, you're undecided. Hmm. I'm trying to figure out best way to answer that question because it's a really, it's a, it's a good question. I think f for me personally, I've always kind of been a, a jack of all trades hmm. in band when I was in the band class in elementary school, instead of playing a single instrument, which when I started, I played the xylophone, I think, in the first, second, third grade, because I was a piano to xylophone. And then it was marching band season. You can't really carry up xylophone. You can, but it's not super exciting. So I switched to French horn. But at that point, I, I, I figured out the French horn quickly. Then I was played the oboe. Then I played the bassoon, then the tuba, and I sort of became the guy that if a part was missing in the piece that they could hand me some new instrument, I'd try and figure it out. And so I've always <laughs> liked being in that position. So for me, the diversity of the different mediums is exciting because I don't like resting on my laurels mm -hmm. and just doing what I do, quote unquote, but being able to challenge myself and keep growing in different ways. And I yeah. recognized that the growth of a performance on a television show where you're purging six, seven, eight pages of dialogue a day, you have a lot to accomplish. So you've got to be pretty spot on every take. But if you're robotic about it, you're giving the editor the same thing all the time. Mm -hmm. So you're just giving them one choice. So you have to be flex enough that you're giving some options, but you have to, you can't just change things up radically or else yeah. you're only you're, you're you're harming your own editorial options in movies it's a director's medium you wait and they design a whole thing and it's really crafting art you're doing mm -hmm. something very specific you don't see it for a year it's a bigger project and you 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 know you're doing two or three pages a day so it's a lot of repetition but in a much grander scale and in theater mm -hmm. You're a, an athlete, you know, you're giving 100% of your performance every single time, hmm. assuming that no one's ever seen it before, assuming hmm. that it's never happened before. And that's a super power discipline that I'm constantly amazed that people can be in a musical every eight shows a week for a year. I just don't know what happens when you have the flu or you screamed... Right. At a, at a concert on the weekend or, <laughs> nope. or just tired. You don't have that, you don't have that ability. And so I like to try and do them all. So those were the three things. <laughs> I, I recognized that there was a pecking order um, probably 15, 20 years ago. Yeah. And I didn't really, I wanted to make the best use of all of them. So feature films come when they do. You can't really, you can try to be only an, a movie actor, but movies are hard to get man there's casting directors and hundreds of actors reading backstage trying to like knock on doors to get seen for this movie yeah. every person but one gets doesn't get a job it's hard tv acting is you know it's a little bit different it's, it's more kind of factory work and so i wanted to mm. be able to flex in both of them the theater i've always loved and then all of a sudden i was on a tv show and then the hosting thing came my way because i was on a tv show on cbs and the tonys were on cbs and so they thought would i want to host the tonys to like cross promote <laughs> is that really what it was at first yeah well they all they, they always do that um that's whatever actor person is on the network that the emmys are airing on that year is the talent that they hire from uh at least that has been the way that way in the past so so cbs had the tonys all the time and then every fourth year had the emmys and so i got to host the emmys twice and a bunch of tonys but i also i just loved the tony awards i i'm oh. old enough that that I would, I found out that there was this underground group of people who had VHS tapes of Tony Awards past that they had recorded, and I would order and, yes. and barter. <laughs> I would watch all the old Tony Awards That's so uh, cool. on tape, and I had a stack of VHS tapes that were like Same. manna. And yes. so I really was that kid, and I, I really, I really wanted my job hosting to not be so much about 
this is a golden opportunity for everyone to notice me, but it yeah. was a golden opportunity for me, for everyone to notice while notice me showcasing other people doing super kick ass things, right? And so that I was very P.T. Barnum in my idea and very sort of Kermit the Frog in my uh, welcome to the show. Now look at this. Well, hi, everybody. I'm going to say some jokes to make you feel at ease and maybe sing a song so that you feel kind of confident with what the night's going to be. But it's really about this. It sounds mm. sort of like martyry selfless. And it was legitimately selfless because I, I had a day job and I just wanted to make that Emmy Awards the best that it could be not not to win the game, but to have the people that were at home watching the Emmys feel like it was a good Emmy Award show. Right. And the Tonys, I mean, that's a very easy show to host because it's filled with performances by people who do them eight times a week. Yeah. On an Emmys show or on an Oscar show, you have to figure out what the extra content is going to be because all these people are making other, they're making single camera things. So if you're gonna do a musical number, you have to, find someone to write it you have to Start find the dancers you have to do yeah. you have to d decide if it's too much and if people are like why am i watching a big song and dance number this is this is the oscars right, right. but in but in the tonys the whole show is just like look at these people do this amazing thing <laughs> amazing thanks here's an award for someone who works their butt off now watch this cast of 40 people <laughs> tap dance on a car i mean it's just it's like superpower people so so I got to do the hosting thing and that's its own weird skill set. Skillset, and then I just started yeah. saying, here we go. Like let's, let's hone skill sets and, and add on. I bought one of those um, leather hole punches so I can add notches to my belt. There you go. Yes. <laughs> I really was going to ask like, what are the, what is hosting 101? Like what are the innate skills and qualities that is required to do a great hosting job and you just answered that so beautifully. I am obsessed with the idea that Kermit the Frog is an influence of yours. Well, Jim Henson was the only person I ever wrote a fan letter to. <gasps> cool. I'm a big fan. Uh, that's a magic show to me as well. Puppetry magic. Yes. is magic, right? It's taking yeah. inanimate objects, combining them, and then using, using your hand, your arms, yeah to make it seem real. And when you go back and look at those old Sesame Street clips of, of real children in interacting mm -hmm. with, with Grover and they think it's real and you know that if you panned back, you would see Frank Oz on the ground covered with a cloth with his arm above his head interacting with this six-year-old, that's magic to me. So yeah. I've always loved that vibe. But yeah, hosting 101, get good at reading a teleprompter, Okay. And be ready to change all the time as the show goes on. Mm. Because we had all kind we would have all kinds of interesting little clever bits, but then if Frank Langella wins an award and talks for oh. four and a half minutes instead of forty five <laughs> seconds, that's great, right? I mean he won an award, he's allowed to talk. I don't mean anything disparaging about that at all. Yeah. That's exciting. But now we're four minutes long on a yeah. show that's supposed to come in on time. And that's it's one TV. award. So yeah. now you're backstage with your little team going, okay, well, <laughs> now we won't do this. And instead of doing my whole little like comedy bit here, I'll just come out and say this. And we'll hope that this person wins because they're not there. So that'll save some oh, time. Funny. And so, and then someone, <laughs> someone says the F word and it's like, and the crowd is kind of awkward. So then you think, okay, we need an F word joke soonish to like recognize that that just happened. So you're kind of in flux. Yes. One of my favorite things for doing award shows was another Lin-Manuel Miranda bit is that I wanted to do an end of the show recap. Yes. Actually, the first time I did the Tonys, it wasn't Lynn, it was Mark Shaman and Scott Whitman, and I asked them to write a closing number. Mm -hmm. and, I, and my idea was that it would be like a magic show, is that in the, the closing number was a recap of the show, and Ugh. the lyrics, and, and we'd have a screen behind me that would show clips of what just had just happened and so the audience would not just turn turn the channel as soon as they heard the best musical but all of a sudden right. wait there's another number and then and then it's like a magic how did they know that all of these things were going to happen yeah and so i had mark and scott had written a song and we had a a lyrics of what we thought was likely to happen because you can okay. 
pretty much get a sense of five nominees who's won the drama desk and won the OB, like won yeah. all of the other awards. And then you had sort of a B alt in case the A didn't win and it was a dark mm. horse. And then they were backstage the whole show writing new lyrics to random things that happened. Yeah. And then I, in a three hour telecast at about the two hour, 20 minute mark, I kind of vanished and voice of God would say, and now please welcome <laughs> Audra McDonald. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was backstage with them going over in the prompter, all the new bits and locking it in and then would come out. And I did that final thing and it went really great. And it was off super fun. The next year we did it as a rap, like a spoken yeah. word thing. That's what Lin-Manuel Miranda mm -hmm. and Tommy Kale uh, helped with that. They were backstage in a little booth downstairs. God bless them. They're just amazing. And I went downstairs as a little white guy trying to, we had to italicize which, which parts of which words were on the downbeat just because it was so fast. Oh, interesting. Couldn't screw that one up. <laughs> and so I, I, I decided to start challenging myself with one-offs. Award shows are fun because they're the opposite of, fee, of uh, film acting, right? Because oh, it's yeah. just, you do it once and you're done. Yes. I hosted the Oscars and it's open with this big giant love to movies. Mm -hmm. And I've never even watched it since I did it. Cause it was like, you oh. do it once and it was like big dancers, lots of like things and Jack Black and, yeah. and it was great, but it never is ever performed again. No, it's it weird. kind of fun and freaky about, totally. about musicals one-offs. Totally. Um, from those old VHS tapes, do you have a favorite Tony's Awards performance or number? Jennifer Holiday in Dreamgirls on the Tony okay, was, sick, was sickening. <laughs> I mean, I can only imagine that's what it was like every night because she was just yeah. crushing the town. But seeing someone that alive and sweaty and large in a presence, you know, yeah. with her eyes and her mouth, which seemed like it could dislocate in certain, certain ways. I don't know yes. how it happened, but it was just living life. And it's hard when you're on stage and you're singing because, because you're insecure. Oh. I mean, you're, my mind when I sing on stage races faster than than, than my breath control and everything. So as mm -hmm. I'm singing, I'm judging. I'm thinking, okay, that was good. And oh, you cracked there. And here it comes, mm -hmm. get the breath ready, calm your body. Like, you know, your mind works faster than your brain and people are judging you and watching you and you can sense that. And mm -hmm. so it's hard to not feel sweaty and nervous when you're singing. I don't like doing cabaret shows and stuff. It's just like, I don't like people watching me sing out of context. Mm -hmm. But watching her do that, it was as if I was entering her world mm. it was f fierce and fantastic loved it what a fantastic answer um i could not agree more and i think i've that's probably everyone's that's probably everyone's like it's a lot of people's top choice can i tell you though what's interesting about the hosting gig mm. is that when you succeed as a host you become more of a personality as like an affable person that's trusted as a, mm. as a conduit for other things. Like I said to you how I, and I authentically say it with passion, how it's not about a showcase for the host. It's about yeah. thing, but in doing so, I think it's interesting that I needed to sort of realign my acting, um, skills because I, I still wanted to do interesting performances and not just mm -hmm. be seen as a personality, as a as a host kind of person, like, welcome right. to my party. Hi, everybody. It's Neil. I still want to be able to play non-Neil people that are nothing like me. Sure. And so that became sort of my driving force when, how, well, I guess mid How I Met Your Mother, because Barney Stinson was nothing like me, even though we looked the same. But <laughs> moving on from that into... Series of Unfortunate Events, yeah. and before that, Hedwig, and then after that, like It's a Sin, getting to do parts that are nothing like me, yeah. and being able to hide within a character is such a vastly different thing than presenting yourself as yourself. Yeah. Like okay. a very Johnny Carson-y, oh, isn't he just kind of nice? Sure. That's a different thought to a casting director than, oh, yeah. 
yeah, let's hire him. Who knows what'll happen? There's a danger right. in in cinematic, in good acting, right? And and there's cool. kind of a there's sort of a genteel, um, calm confidence in being a host that's necessary <laughs> to win over multiple demographics. If you're too mm. caustic and hardcore, you'll piss off certain people. If you're too <laughs> nice, you'll you'll irritate others. But I'm I'm appreciative that I'm having another chapter in my life where I'm getting yeah. to do parts that belie that kind of nice, um, yes. gentle version of myself. This podcast episode is brought to you by Real Time with Bill Maher, starring Maher himself. The comedian and satirist hosts this long-running Emmy-nominated talk show covering the week's news and featuring a panel of guests, including actors, activists, politicians, musicians, comedians, and more. He's irrepressible, opinionated, and of course, politically incorrect. Real Time with Bill Maher is now streaming on HBO Max for your Emmy consideration and outstanding variety talk series and all other categories. Again, challenging audience perceptions and avoiding pigeonholing. I mm. think of Gone Girl as the ultimate mm opposite of Neil Patrick Harris' performance. Like, that opened my eyes. Well, I mean, getting to work with David Fincher is, that's an actor's dream, sure. I think, because he really is an artist. Watching him work, he does 40, 50 takes all the time. And in doing so, it didn't feel exhausting. It felt like, like all of the noise around would kind of go away. Because if you're if you spend an hour setting up a shot on in a movie and then you quickly you have a first AD who's saying we gotta go guys it's been an hour we have lunch we have the whole day's worth of stuff to get and then mm -hmm. finally okay finally it's lit bring the actors in bring the actors in okay we gotta film go ready rolling and action great we like it one more okay one more everybody back and action great we got it good move on and then they spend another hour lighting another shot it mm -hmm. makes the acting part of it feel like rushed sometimes yeah. And so David Fincher's was not that. It was like a Tai Chi exercise. Like he respected that the performance part of it, you came in and you and he wouldn't even care about the first five or ten takes because he could see people nervous and like and unsure. And so you would just keep doing take after take after take. And I was like, this is a dream. Yeah. Because I'm not checking my phone. I'm not sitting at a hmm. At like at a chair talking about life and then oh right i have to remember my lines you were just like yeah. in this weird ether and it was hypnotic and just amazing <laughs> so being able to work for him was amazing and then getting this crazy weird interesting part that took a lot of left turns i've been very fortunate dude in my life that i get to do these harold and kumari parts where i come in for a few days and film mm -hmm. something that has a bit of a lasting impression part of that i take credit for but part of that is just circumstantial you know getting to be in gone girl that's a role that that was great because it seemed like it's one thing and then it had a kind of shocking uh, a shocking end uh, yes. and was was fairly memorable even though it was um it was truncated and kind of finite yes not a lot fairly of heavy memorable. lifting and left a bit of an impact Yes, a bit of an impact that I am completely scarred by. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> you mentioned it's a sin, and I have to ask you about it. It's um, another just extraordinary, beautiful, I, the transformative uh, that you were speaking about earlier definitely comes to mind. Um, how does it overlap with you without getting too much into your personal life? How does, what does it's a sin mean to you personally? Like what, um, are there overlaps between your experience as a gay person and and Henry, Henry Coltrane. Yeah, I wanted to do It's a Sin really badly. I wanted to work with Russell T. Davies. I was, mm. um, Queer as Folk UK was a big inspiration for me when mm. I was questioning my own sexuality on film and like how to still, how to not be the, the effect comedy sidekick that's that yeah. most people uh, in the 80s and 90s mm -hmm. um, were kind of relegated to, was if you were the gay mm -hmm. guy, then you were sort of a funny character on Hollywood squares or something that gave pithy answers to things. Mm -hmm. And yeah. there's other versions of sexuality. And Queer as Folk 
represented that mm. in a very like watching Charlie Hunnam be super sexy uh, with another guy was was unique and exciting to me. So I loved Russell, and I was in I was interested in sort of challenging myself as an actor. I had, you know, when I did Hedwig on Broadway, I had never done drag before. Mm. And I had never walked in heels before. And so I was very insecure that people would see my tells and would give me a buzzer or a, you know, a Grecian thumbs down because they saw that yeah. I didn't look confident. And so that was, and I had to, I had to struggle through my own internal sort of personal homophobia about like oh. self-loathing parts of myself sure. or like, I don't, what does it mean to cock a hip, to lilt mm. my voice, to, to swish my, to soften everything in a, in a, in a mm. world where masculinity had its own meanings to me. And so mm. I wanted to do that role and take it on because I was insecure about it. What a, cool. what a great time and a great opportunity to do it. Otherwise I'm just going to go do drag on my own and go to some bar and be nervous and see how it goes. And I saw, I thought, let's really do it. So I did that yeah. and that was super fun. And then when it's a sin came around again, I, I found, I found myself insecure with my own isms about being okay. the older version of me to a younger ensemble. Mm. Um, and also being, uh, using an accent that I don't have. And I thought, mm because of those two things, I'm very interested in seeing what happens and I don't want to disappoint. And so Henry's track was so special to me. I love that last yeah. speech that he gives about, he's he's just sitting thinking and convinced that there was mold maybe on the windowsill yeah. and that if he just had cleaned more, if he could have just gotten rid of the mold, then it wouldn't have entered his lung. Like that's where his mind was. No one came and sat him down and said, this is what you have. This is what it is. It yeah. was just pariah, isolation, yeah. quiet, uh, quiet end to it all. I don't know, man. Yeah. That was, it was very challenging to film in certain ways because I wanted to be truthful to it all. But it's oh, hard yeah. to find truth in things you haven't experienced a lot. And also interesting and hard to find truth in things that are all unknowns. Like I didn't want to do a lot of research on HIV AIDS then because my character no. didn't know anything about it. So I didn't want to sure. have be fighting informed decision-making that I'd already made as Neil. Yeah. So yeah, I was so pleased with, with the way it came out. And I was just, I'm so pleased with the, with the reception Mm. for the piece because it's vibrant and it's filled with life and yet it explains a chapter in history that a lot of people a lot of gay people especially there's a vast swath of the lgbtq community the younger kids that don't even have mm. much recollection of what hiv aids means outside of take prep then you're fine <laughs> there's a whole mm. chapter there right so to be able to showcase it and spotlight it in a way that is effective for them as well as respectful mm -hmm. and emotional for a generation that lived through it mm. that's a that's a, a very difficult needle to thread and i think yeah. only someone like russell t davies can accomplish it yeah no it does feel very very truthful it feels like i am watching um some some things that did happen despite, as you're saying, not being able to put myself in the shoes of that era. Um, For sure. And watching kids that you want to succeed yeah. in, and you're watching it knowing that some of them won't. That's a very, in, like, it's a like good st storytelling. This is so wonderful. We're all about the um, advice. What is, what is the number one piece of advice for early career performers of any kind? Oh, that's a good question. I would I would say two things simultaneously. To mm -hmm. one is to try and really figure out who you want to be, like who you are, not as a singular, not as mm -hmm. an I'm the foot, I'm the high school quarterback or I'm the pretty girl, um, but but like are what what is your angle? What makes you unique? Why okay. would a casting director want to hire you mm -hmm. as opposed to the other more attractive person? 
Sure. If you can wrap your head around who you are, then when you're auditioning for things and not getting them, you will ideally not be so rattled and and so um, rot when it's not you. Because if you are you and you're confident in who you are and you don't get the gig, they didn't want you. They wanted yeah. someone else. And that doesn't affect you. Mm. And in turn, it doesn't make you spin about why... Uh, I spent so many years, dude, auditioning where I was like, I'd finish and I'd say, is that what they wanted? I'm not sure. Is that what they, should I have done this differently? Should I have done that differently? And and then you're just insecure about who you are. And then in turn, when you're auditioning and you're insecure about who you are, the casting director can smell that a mile away. Yes. I've been on the other side of it. And when someone comes in and they're, and they don't know who to be, you don't want to hire them because yeah. you want to hire people that come in and they know what they want to do. Right? Yeah. So it's a double-edged sword because you're not going to get gigs because you came in with your own take on it. Mm. But in turn, you'll get the gigs that are that you're right for, that you're confident for. And the other fork to that would be try every way possible to not personalize the rejection. Yeah. As I said earlier, only one person gets the gig that hundreds of people audition for. So just numbers alone, most aren't going to get it. It has nothing to do with them. But then just circumstantially, Casting directors are often hungry. Producers and directors are often tired. And if you come and do a great audition right after someone else had done a great audition, it's different than if you did a great audition right after someone did a bad audition. And sometimes <laughs> you're last and they're in a hurry. And sometimes mm -hmm. you're first and they're not awake. And I'm not explaining it away. It's just that there's so much, you know, you could be the best person and they think you're the best, but the other person that they hired is is six inches shorter than you and therefore like it, it's not not physically gonna look great well that has nothing to do with you as a person as an actor as a as an entity of worth yeah it just is what it is right and i i just i have been beaten down by why wasn't it me mm -hmm. and i've worked a lot and so i know that a lot of other people get really affected as to their own self-worth based on on the constant, the near constant rejection. Yeah. If the people who I find most successful are the ones that are happy with who they are, they audition all the time. And if they don't get it, it's a shrug for them and they keep on going. And mm. so that when they do get it, it's an, it's an affirmation as opposed to when they don't get it, it's some sort of, um, you know, slap across the face. Yeah, love that. Wonderful. Do you have a worst audition horror story? Speaking of auditions, Oof. it's funny hearing you talk about rejections because in my mind, you book them all. <laughs> oh, I did not book them all, dude. <laughs> I auditioned for Bubble Boy, which I think Jake Gyllenhaal yes. was in. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it was, there was another movie called Powder. I auditioned for one of these and, and I was supposed to, I think the role was was supposed to be sort of mentally challenged as mm -hmm. written. And that was a really stressful thing to try and determine when you're going into audition, having never talked to the director or the casting person at what level of deficiency is appropriate to try and get a job. Hmm. And it was, it, and I didn't get the job and I, and I, I just loathed the choices that I made because that's such a fragile place to be. You know, you don't want to be making light of at all. You don't want to be doing a, a bad version of, of something that's so sensitive yeah. and yet you have to audition. <laughs> so you don't know if you're supposed to on a scale of one to a hundred be at mm. a, like a at a 11 12 right. of effectiveness of vocal quality of of uniqueness or whether you're supposed to be at a 75 you know right. Right. so i'm 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 really thankful that we live in a world now where where um that doesn't have to happen so much anymore that people are getting cast more for who they are as opposed to having to pretend to be someone that they're not. Mm -hmm. I think that that's very, a very savvy and a very necessary place to be. Yeah, sure. Neil, thank you so much. This is so fun. Cheers. Thanks, Jack.
And now it's time to hear from Christine McKenna-Torella, our backstage casting insider. I will let her take it away. Hey folks, Christine McKenna-Torella here. First of all, I want to just wish everyone a happy Pride. It is June month and I am a proud queer immigrant here in the United States and um, I love June in New York. It's so beautiful. And my small act of pride um, is to make sure that from now on moving forward, I'm not going to say hi guys as my greeting. I already know that that's not something I should be saying. Why am I gendering my hello? So I'm really making conscious effort to say hi folks. And I invite you guys this Pride Month with all of the other beautiful things and way you're celebrating yourself um, to also think about the strange things we gender. Because when you kind of look at the list, it's so strange and it's misogynistic in so many ways. Okay, so building on last week's topic for headshots, this week I am answering your most common questions about headshots. So I worked in kids casting for a long time and I used to get a lot of questions from parents about headshots for kids. So that is my only exception to the golden rule that you have to have a headshot. If you are under 18, it's not necessary. You are going to grow too quickly. The shot will not be relevant for very long. So mom, dad, guardian, please don't spend your money there. A nice high definition shot where your child looks like themselves will work. Okay. Avoid glamour shots and those weird kind of portfolio style ones that they they sell you or try to sell you. Um, Try to emulate a professional headshot in the way that you'd kind of angle it for your child. It's, you know, it's, it's shoulders up and, you know, a nice smile. Take a look at real headshots for that. Just a nice high definition shot taken on your camera or your high definition phone will do the job. What should I expect to pay for headshots? Uh, some actors ask me that. It's, well, it's anywhere between low end $300 upwards and beyond of $1,000, okay? It's an investment. So really think about who you're going with. Do your research so you don't have to spend what you don't have. You don't have to start with the four-figure headshots. More expensive isn't always better. Honestly, some of the four-figure headshot photographers out there, I don't really like their style. So really do your research. That's why I emphasize it so much with headshots. A good shot will last you a long time. Find the style that you love, that you can picture yourself taking shots and loving them. Get recommendations from friends. If you see people in audition rooms and you love their shot, ask them. Maybe the photographer you want has a payment plan. That's the other thing, right? Like maybe $700 is too much up front or $500 too much up front, but you can do it in installments. Or... This is kind of radical, but do you have a skill that you could barter for? You know, if you're an actor getting, you know, you're restarting a career, you know, you have another skill that you could really barter with. Maybe have a chat with your photographer. You never know. When should I get new headshots? Actors ask me all the time. Sometimes they just get bored with their headshots that they're using or they're just not sure if it really looks like them. And so to answer this one, I'm going to use myself as the example. So I have had a few professional shots from offices that I worked in, etc. But I haven't had an actual session in years, right? And I look different in actually all of the shots that I've recently taken, I have a little COVID wit. Uh, But most importantly, my hair is a short and very blonde bob. And my last professional shot is like a long red brunette haircut. And I look different. And I'm also in a very different place in my career. So I have a different energy when I come into the room than perhaps the shot that I used to share as my professional shot. So I don't really look like that old shot, even though I love it, and I'm not that person coming into the room. So apply the same rule for yourself. Does this headshot still really look like the person that will walk into the audition room? I hope this is helpful. I'm still taking your questions about anything to do with your acting career. Send them to editorial at backstage.com and put podcast in the title. Onto the casting calls for this week. I don't know if you follow me on social media, but you'll know that I'm a crazy cat cat lady if you do. There is a really fun kitty litter shoot 
in Missouri. If I was there, I'd be applying for this one myself. They're looking for a polished cat lover with her own cat that's willing to bring the kitty to the shoot. I would do that, although my cat wouldn't be very happy. So if you're in the Missouri area, uh, Springfield, Missouri, take a look at that one. There is a social media shoot in New York seeking a model with an interesting look. Note, if you have a rollerblade or skateboard skill, that's a major plus. They're looking for tattoos, piercings, something kind of lovely and edgy, interesting haircuts, welcome. And for our French-speaking actors, there is a nationwide, worldwide project for the right talent. They have a voiceover project casting a narrator for Historica Canada's promotional video. The tone is authentic, conversational, and warm. Details for all of those are on the site. As always, we have hundreds of castings for every type of actor in every region on this site. So head over to Backstage.com to check those out. That's all from me for now. Break a leg in your upcoming auditions and have a beautiful week. In the Envelope is recorded at Lotus Productions and Hyperbolic Audio in New York City and Soundbox LA, Mark Rouse Studios, and Buzzies in Los Angeles. Thanks as always to our producer extraordinaire, Jamie Muffet, and to the team at Backstage, Samantha Sherlock, Mark Stinson, Caitlin Watkins, and of course, Casey Howe. Visit Backstage.com and don't forget, you can subscribe to Backstage by using the code ENVELOPE at checkout for a free trial. That's right, 100% free. For more exclusive content, join us on Facebook and Twitter at In The Envelope and subscribe, share, and leave a comment. Who would you like us to interview next? Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you next time for another glimpse in the envelope.